Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near Death Experiences podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to get into this one. This is coming from a woman named Selena. And Selena is from Australia. Shout out to Australia. There are a good number of listeners out uh, down under. So uh, about time we had an Australian near-death experience. Um, and this occurred in uh, 1990. So Selena had some complications, uh, medical complications uh, around, um, I guess, well, it's a, a lot of different things that she gets into, but it, it happens right before she gives birth to her child, and she has um, a classic near-death experience of of a tunnel. And but a lot of what drew me to this particular NDE was there was a lot of synchronicity surrounding it. She has a particularly powerful dream that she starts off the story with, which occurred four years prior to the birth of her, her uh, second son. And she, in this dream, she sees that she's going to have two more children. She already has seven, so that'll be nine total. Um, and then there are a series of events that occur um, during her actual day of her near-death experience that are quite, um, well, almost seemed as if they're ordered in a certain way for her to, to be okay um, and and have that meaningful coincidence that um, things happening in a certain order that, that works out in a, in a very, um, almost a dovetail kind of way. Um, and so I, I found it very interesting, and particularly uh, some of the things that she mentions of uh, during her while her experience was going on. So I'm excited to get into this, and um, it is uh, as ever coming to us from the Near Death Experience Research Foundation and their website nderf.org. Um, I highly recommend you all go check it out if you ever uh, want to browse around for. For a half an hour and, and read some other um, stories because they have all sorts of things on there. Um, so I think we'll just get right into it. This is Selena's near-death experience. What is it like to have a near-death experience? When I was 36, my youngest son and I would find out it was both wonderful and terrible. I will always call William my miracle baby, as so many strange events combined to bring us back from the brink. But four years before this, at the start of this journey, I had dreamt a strange dream. I found myself coming down on the top of a tiny planet. The sky was edged with pink and blue-green and behind that lay the darkness of space. A luminous spirit being that I recognized as Sai Baba was waiting there for me. As I floated down and landed, I wanted to run towards him, but instead he pointed me silently towards two figures some four meters away. 
There I saw two little boys, one a half head taller than the other, and standing very close together. I knew immediately that I was being shown two future children. I instinctively cried out, No, please, no more children. My circumstances could not have been worse. On my own, with seven children, five under four years of age. My heart, damaged from the carrying of twins, had become progressively worse with the two subsequent pregnancies. Physically, I was a shadow of my former self, troubled also by back and joint damage. But apparently, unmoved by my pleas, the spirit being pointed to the boys again, and so I walked right up to them to try to discover if I could see what they looked like. I looked into their eyes and saw only the stars behind us, streaming through their eyes. Sai Baba walked slowly away, and I watched him until he disappeared over the horizon. I woke up, disturbed and intrigued by this experience. Now, four years on, here I was, married, 35 weeks pregnant with my ninth child, and yes, I had already had the first boy from the dream, Max. My husband had announced that he wanted a girl both times I had become pregnant. I had warned him not to get too hopeful, as I believed that we would be seeing the two little boys from that vivid dream. A number of remarkable events occurred just prior to the birth of this ninth child, William. Heart trouble had become a pressing problem, and compression in my spine had led to the loss of some muscle in one leg making walking difficult. I had woken up that day, feeling stressed and full of a deep sense of foreboding. In the morning, I clearly heard a voice telling me, you must get to a hospital. Where did this voice come from? Was it my own intuition, or was someone helping me? I did not know, but it sounded so insistent, I felt I must act on it. The baby was not due for some five weeks, so how to be admitted to the hospital some one hour's drive away? I had no pressing reason to go. Filled with a sense of urgency and after some thought, I decided that when I got to the hospital, I would ask for help for the pain and difficulty I was experiencing with walking. So that's what I did and insisted on being admitted for tests by a reluctant doctor. Later, when the doctors asked me what symptoms I was experiencing, I answered, just write down, clapped out you, Brit Australian for worn out sheep. That sums it up, I think. They laughed at this and ordered tests for later that day. Within an hour of admission, I experienced a hemorrhage. So that is why I had to come in, I thought, as I sat eating lunch later that day, feeling more relaxed. There were no signs of other problems or early labor. Problem over. After all, I was not due to deliver the baby for five weeks, so there was plenty of time now. But as I looked through the large plate glass windows at the sky outside, thousands of tiny stars started to rush towards me at breakneck speed. It felt exactly as if I were sitting in the cockpit of Star Trek's Starship Enterprise hurtling through space. 
Just a really bad dizzy spell, I reasoned, and limped over to my bed to lie down. By now, I was struggling for breath, not unusual, as this happened with most exertion now. But my peripheral vision seemed to be shutting down too. What was this? Dark clouds were gathering across my eyes. As I lay on the bed trying to breathe, another patient approached the bed and asked for a pin. Are you sure you haven't got one? She continued to ask as I shook my head and gasped. No, no, not right now. She wandered off unconcerned. But I feared that soon I would lose consciousness. Desperately, I pressed the buzzer for a nurse to come. No answer. The bell was dead. Eventually, with a supreme effort, and now very little sight left, I whispered to the patient in the next bed to please call a nurse. One arrived in a leisurely fashion and asked, What seems to be the trouble? I managed to gasp. Can't breathe. Can't see. She looked like a gray blob surrounded by moving clouds. She remarked disinterestedly, I had that last weekend. You've probably got a middle ear infection. I was stunned by this casual diagnosis. The situation was starting to look more and more comical. So many inexplicable delays. I would have laughed aloud if I had been capable. Here I was, I thought, fighting to stay conscious and keep breathing, and apparently it was all just so uninteresting. I tried to gasp to the nurse that my ears were fine. She then, almost absent-mindedly, reached out and took my pulse. Then, full of drama, she pressed my hand and cried, Don't go anywhere. Wait here. And rushed into the corridor, looking for help, as apparently my pulse was over 200 and too fast to record. Ironic, really, that she should ask me to wait. I was like a beached whale, drowning in the air, and yes, definitely not going anywhere. At the precise moment that the nurse ran into the corridor, a heart specialist, apparently not normally ever walking those corridors, appeared in front of her, and she literally crashed into him. He came into the ward and immediately recognized the symptoms of heart failure and assembled all the necessary equipment to do a rescue mission. I was told later how lucky I was. It seemed that the only other available staff on the ward that day was an inexperienced intern. He could not quickly out what was happening. I was told that a fatal delay may have occurred had this heart specialist not been walking down the corridor at that precise moment. Quickly, I felt a cold gel sensor pack slapped on my back and people stabbing my toes, asking me if I could feel them, but I was so cold and numb that I couldn't feel much anymore. I started drifting off and could only vaguely hear them now. I found myself floating down a long tunnel. I looked all around and was aware of a soft, and mesmerizing light at the end. I wanted to rush towards it, but found it hard to move forward, and could do so only by forcing myself forward, half swimming and half walking. Then I heard a distant, faint voice cry out, Sinus rhythm collapsing, we are losing her. But I felt completely disinterested in this. 
I did not know whom they were talking about and was annoyed at the interruption. Now I only had eyes for the wonderful glowing light at the end of the tunnel, which seemed to hold the promise of great warmth and love unending. I felt so joyful and excited. All awareness of my body on the bed left me as I tried for some time to reach the light. I knew absolutely that wonderful things were awaiting if I could only get to the end of the tunnel. The light now loomed larger, and I could see faint outlines of figures waiting there, beckoning me forwards. I wondered, who is waiting there? Is it angels or loved ones? I tried harder and harder to reach the end of the tunnel. Then a very faint voice interrupted my travels with a tiny, urgent, baby on board, and pleading, breathe, you must breathe. A nurse was apparently shouting loudly in my ear. This caught my attention. I stopped in the middle of the tunnel and wondered, who has a baby on board, and who should be breathing? Then I thought, perhaps it is me, perhaps I am pregnant, and if I am, then I must go back, and I reluctantly turned around. It was so hard to leave that wonderful promise of all-encompassing love and warmth waiting in the light, and those light-filled beings waiting there. The return back down the tunnel was brutally sudden. I came back to consciousness to experience total chaos. Doctors were shouting, my whole body was in pain. I felt icy cold, but I could see that I was indeed pregnant. My memories flooded back, and I knew I had many children and others who needed me to hold on. I fought to come back, and although the heart rhythm was still unstable, I immediately went into labor. Serious-faced heart specialists told me, you can't have the baby yet. We will deliver in two weeks when your heart has settled down. I did not argue. I could see their point, but I knew from my previous eight deliveries that this labor was not a trial run. So, exhausted, I steeled myself for a long night. Whether it was the right time or not, this baby was on its way. I was informed later that day that I had flatlined for some time, and that had this episode happened at our house, some one hour's drive from the nearest hospital, both William and I would have died. I reflected on that urgent message in the morning. No wonder I had to get to the hospital that day. How strange, the many delays that had led to the nurse colliding with the heart specialist. I realized that I had been somehow protected all the way through this crisis. I also felt enormous gratitude for the nurse who had shouted in my ear, because I realized that I had only turned back because of her prompting. At dawn the following morning, with labor well advanced, a grim-faced team of heart specialists and surgeons gathered to deliver the baby. I was hooked to a bank of heart monitors and had needles in my feet, arms, and hands. The recalcitrant heart was still racing and wobbling around. Their ominous expressions told me that they didn't have much hope for our chances under anesthesia. Would you like to leave any messages? I was asked. None, I replied. 
My husband and children knew I loved them. I told them that every day. Since seeing the two little boys standing together on that planet four years earlier in the dream, I felt sure that William, at least, would survive to be with his brother. As the anesthetic took hold, I felt totally at peace. After all, I had come close to the light, and it was so wonderful, I had no fear of death left. William was delivered with only minor difficulties, apparently unharmed by his prenatal adventure in the Star Trek ship. Okay, so that was Selena's near-death experience, and many thanks to her for sharing that. I don't know how much I really have to add here towards the end. Um, this is an interesting one because it's the actual near-death experience part of the story is, is actually quite, uh, quite small in comparison with the rest of everything going on, and in fact, it's almost as much a synchronicity story as it is the, the near-death experience. Synchronicity being a meaningful coincidence of an inner and outer event. Um, I guess that's a rough definition, but um, <laughs> something, a, a pairing of, of uh, something from the inside and something from the outside in a meaningful way that usually appears to us as something quite surprising and shocking um, when we come across them. So the, a lot of what she talks about in, in her incredible story of, of um, the birth of her son William and the, all the trauma she had to go through with uh, her medical issues happening at the time, uh, being in the hospital, all of this is kind of wrapped within this story of, of this synchronicity. And she starts off her, her account of her near-death experience by talking about a dream uh, four years prior to her NDE. Uh, she says she had a strange dream where she was coming down on, on this planet and she sees a spirit being, which she uh, identifies as Sai Baba. And she, Sai Baba points to two kids that are standing there and is basically, um, <laughs> basically uh, she understands that she's supposed to have more children, two more children, and she's kind of distressed about that because she already has seven. And so two more on top of seven, that's, that's a lot of kids. So she um, quite understandably um, is a little distressed by that. Um, but this serves as, as a precognitive sort of dream to show what's, what's coming in her life. And I'll just briefly pause here to emphasize... I tend to I tend to talk a lot about Jungian ideas, and I hope that's not annoying or, or um, gets on anybody's nerves because I it's it's kind of embarrassing to be so reliant on on one 
uh, one type of uh, knowledge or one field of of study and to to find it so useful, but there's obviously something going on in relation to dreams and near-death experiences that we have we come across again and again this constant <laughs> interplay between a dream and a near-death experience and and some that uh NDEs that emerge out of dreams um some where dreams are just part of the story that provide a a very strong meaning to the story or or some interesting weird happenings before a near death experience and so i i came to use the the union worldview out of necessity for trying to figure out how to make heads or tails of of a near death experience and and the relation to dreams and i think that it it is a very um useful tool to to be able to look at the images in a near death experience um almost as if um you were analyzing a dream to look at it objectively and uh jung's work provides a lot of the toolkit to be able to do that to be able to look at things uh, and compare a particular image or symbol to that of mythology or of a fairy tale or a uh, religion a spiritual tradition there it's it's been very useful and so i only <laughs> i only want to emphasize that just to to point that out that how how common it is that we we do have near death experiences that are somewhat related to to dreams and here this whole story starts off with this dream as a um precognition of what's to come as a synchronicity um in which she does have her first son that she meets in the dream and and then the near death experience occurs with the birth of the second son william um i will say that i think it is fairly interesting that this dream occurs on a planet a tiny planet as if the dream were um pointing out that this is a different world from our own um which i'm sure many of you can empathize with and certainly in dreams can often be quite foreign and different and i think this particular particularly powerful dream of selena's um points to that by using the image of descending down onto a different planet and then she meets her comes across Sai Baba who uh I suppose is some kind of uh image of god to her uh image of a teacher or a guru uh an image of the self um perhaps in the jungian terminology of the totality of the psyche of a higher spir- spiritual being um i did look up Sai Baba and i'll just briefly read um just a, a little information about him Sai Baba of Shirdi also known as Shirdi Sai Baba was an indian spiritual master who was regarded by his devotees as a saint 
and fakir. He is revered by both his Hindu and Muslim devotees during as well as after his lifetime. And uh, he lived, uh, I guess, uh, late 19th century, and he died in 1918. Um, so she... She is a, uh, I guess, familiar with his teachings, uh, uh, maybe a student of, of some of uh, his successors, and, and people have carried on Sai Baba's legacy, and he is the one who appears in this numinous dream to um, point out to her that she's going to have more children. And she seems, um, it, it's kind of, unclear whether she it says that she tried to look at her her future children and saw only saw stars behind them uh, that was that were coming through their eyes um and so she does have the first son uh max and she mentions that her husband wanted wanted girls, but he uh, she was not uh, <laughs> she didn't think that that was going to happen. Um, and then this uh, her NDE all this begins with um, starting out with the birth of her her ninth child, William. Um, and she goes through a lot of her medical issues and, and why it was so difficult and. And she does a good job job of describing what she was going through at the time. But she wakes up one day and has an immediate sense, is told by a voice, that she has to get to the hospital. And this is something we've come across in episodes before of, of certain individuals having a very... Uh, very strong uh, voice presence within them that tells them to do certain things. We've seen it before, before having an NDE present from childhood, and we've also seen it occurring after an NDE as, as a development um, or a side effect of, of having an NDE. This, the presence of a strong voice which tells an individual what they should be doing. And and she doesn't know what this voice is. Uh, she says, it, was it my intuition or was it somebody helping me? Um, and she kind of doesn't understand it, but she does follow it. And this is, this is another aspect of why this is very much a, a synchronicity story. Um, we have a, a couple different instances of... of what can be defined as synchronicities. These, uh, the original dream where she uh, is presented with an inner event, an objective inner event, as I want to talk about. The dream presents certain knowledge in, independently of her own wanting. It wasn't a wish fulfillment type of dream. Um, it, the unconscious presents her with um, this dream of seeing two children, and sure enough, she she does have two children. Now, 
perhaps someone could argue that having had that dream that she wanted to, I don't know, actualize it and, and have children. But it sounds like from from the dream itself that she wasn't, she didn't really want to have more kids. And so, um, and there's also uh, the dream was apparently accurate in its um, uh, portrayal or, or or showing her the the children she would have that they were both boys. And then after that prelude, we have the actual beginning of the. NDE, which is another synchronicity, this voice telling her to get to the hospital. And she goes at great, at great lengths to describe why she, she didn't have any particular reason to, to be in the hospital. And, and this voice told her that she should, that the hospital was, it was very inconvenient. It was a, like an hour away. And so when she goes in, I, I suppose she didn't have a particular reason for being there. She just jokes that on the paper that she's a or, or telling the <laughs> telling the doctors that she's just uh, a worn out sheep, um, and for them to check her out. Um, and so after being admitted, she has a hemorrhage, and this is the first first sign that okay, well maybe she was supposed to be there, and and that's what she thinks. She, she thinks to herself, oh, well, that's why I came in. There was, huh, there was some reason. I had a hemorrhage and um, no other signs of anything wrong. She says, problem over. She wasn't due for another five weeks. So she's, she's just kind of relieved sitting there and then, and then uh, something starts to happen. She says that it's, as if there are thousands of stars rushing at her. Uh, she describes it to Star Trek, going into warp speed. Um, and then there's this almost comical, if it weren't so, you know, frightening, the kind of comedy of, of her trying to get, get people to help her, other patients and, and a nurse, and everyone's just kind of chilled out and not really... Uh, paying attention to what's going on, and um, and she she mentions herself that she, she would have laughed if if she hadn't been able to. Her heart rate is is going through the roof, and um, so she, finally the nurse realizes this, takes her pulse, and it's over two hundred. Um, too fast to record, she says. Um, and then the nurse takes off and runs right into a heart specialist, um, who apparently should not have been walking where he was, that he normally wasn't over on this side of the ward. And, and so she ran into the right person at the right time. Uh, she mentions that I was told later how lucky I was. It seemed that the only other staff available on the ward that day was an inexperienced intern. He could not quickly find out what was happening. I was told that a fatal delay may have occurred had this heart specialist not um, been walking down the corridor at that precise moment. So this is the um, another synchronicity that we have. Um, 
of not only is this voice told her to go to the hospital, but the events are are structured without her without her wanting or desiring in a way that lead to this um, very fortuitous encounter with a just the person that she needed, this heart specialist of the nurse literally running into him uh, if as if it weren't <laughs> as if it weren't enough for them to just uh, run it uh, metaphorically run into each other she she literally ran into him who is able to then end up getting Selena the care that she needs to save her life and also that of her child. And so as after she starts getting some help, she has her experience. And here we go with a, a classic start to a near-death experience that she's floating down a long tunnel towards light. Um... And this, you know, that's obviously something we see all the time, uh, but in with many variations, but it is a very common motif of the tunnel and heading towards the light. And she seems very drawn to the light, although she's seems as though she's tr- struggling to get up to it. It's, she says that she's kind of half walking, half swimming, and it's it's a slow pace. And she feels incredible love and warmth coming from this light at the end of the tunnel. And she's very excited. She's trying to get to it. She has no awareness of her body. Um, And she just knows that if she can get to the end of the tunnel, that there are wonderful things there. She sees figures waiting uh, in this light, outlines, um, we've seen that a couple times of vaguely, vaguely formed figures or silhouettes of, of beings. Um, yeah, we, we've come across that uh, at least a couple times from what I can remember. And she, she kind of wonders whether, okay, are these angels? Are they loved ones? Um, so she's, <laughs> she's trying to get up this, up this tunnel to this light. But one thing that interested me about this experience was we have a situation where there's this interpenetration of of almost two worlds where she's hearing faint faint sounds of of the nurses and and one particular nurse yelling in her ear and it it reminded me almost of a situation in a dream where you might hear I don't know hear the phone ringing in in the physical world and it gets incorporated into your dream and it's it's just fascinating because it also seems as though she she doesn't have a, a very strong memory or or sense of of who she was or who her body was and it's a it's a hard thing to square because we often see this in near death experiences of people say that they have a very very 
strong and greater than normal awareness, but at the same time, there it, it almost seems, based on things that they write, that their memories associated with their what's going on with their body and who they were don't seem to be as uh, that they don't seem to have them as to quite the same degree as we do in our normal consciousness. And if I could extend a, a theory to it, I might say that it, it maybe it has something to do with this strange sense of time that that people describe in having a near-death experience of a timelessness or um, eternity. Um, in a near-death experience, it it's it would seem maybe hard to have memories of the past when this state of a, of a near-death experience has a timeless quality to it. That remembering things in uh, temporal things of who you were and what you were doing, and um, you know all the things that define us as as human beings, might be harder to grasp when you're in such a state of of an all-at-oneness, maybe. But I only, I only bring that up because we've seen it to some degree in, in other, one, other near-death experiences as well, but it might be something that I need to keep looking for because the, it does seem that people can remember their, their lives on Earth, but sometimes it just seems as though it, it takes them a while to remember, oh, I have a baby. Oh, I have kids. That sort of thing that it's, it, at least from the way they describe it, that it's not, it doesn't have the clarity that, that perhaps we have. And, and maybe that's due to the difference in the um, perception of time or lack thereof. Um, but again, this we have this, interpenetration, as I mentioned, between this afterlife beginning of a near-death experience going up the tunnel and at the same time this faint uh, sound coming from her body or from what's going on in the operating room. And perhaps this is where people might object um, a skeptical objection might be, well, you know, her heartbeat was over 200 and um, the light was, uh, the light above her in the operating room and she was having a hallucination as, as her brain was going haywire from lack of oxygen, um, which, you know, that would be a good objection. But... Uh, it seems as though, according to uh, what she learned later, that she did indeed flatline for some period. Um, and perhaps that lines up with when she was having this experience. It's very hard to say, but um, she did uh, in, did flatline where I believe that you probably shouldn't have any, any uh, conscious memories of... Um, having flatlined, but again, I'm not a doctor, so I, I can't say for sure. But um, at the same time, uh, apparently there are still 
very weak sensory functions working in her experience, in her consciousness of, of being able to hear faintly a nurse screaming in her ear, um, which is just, it's, it's very interesting because, again, it, this is why I, I, I chose this episode, this idea of synchronicity, synchronicity of, of pairing this inner and outer inner and outer experience together um, with the individual caught in between, um, something that can defy time and space and causality even. Um, and here again, we have this, uh, this both worlds happening at once. And, and that seems to be a, almost a defining feature of this story is, is that we have things happening from within and, and without. And it, it gets, hard to, <laughs> gets hard to tell the difference because it, during her near-death experience, it's almost like she's, that's the outer part, the, the experience, and then the, it's almost like it switches from the ob- objective physical world being our outer reality to it being the thing she ving- faintly hears the voice from within <laughs> which is the exact opposite of um, what occurred to her that morning of hearing the voice telling her to get up and go to the hospital. But during the near-death experience, it's the voice of the, the nurse in the, quote, physical world yelling in her ear that occurs as the, as the voice inside her head. And so it's, it's this interesting switching of, of roles, which um, I thought was just fascinating. And, and we, don't, we don't usually see... Well, I mean, for instance, we saw it in the, in the last episode that we did in Yi Ming's near-death experience, uh, the second one that he mentions, of being in the uh, gaming cafe and his friend... Um, again, kind of yelling in his ear and it being this this loud but distant sound as he's having this experience. And so it's this, again, this strange overlay of two different inputs into one's senses. Of, of there's some of the physical world just barely hanging in there and then while the experience is unfolding of heading towards the light up the tunnel but again this uh, this threshold is not crossed and she doesn't get to the light she um, is brought back to her body Um, she at the she credits the nurse with with bringing her back in a way that uh well yeah it, it was she the nurse nurse is saying uh breathe you must breathe and then i don't know whether she heard the words baby on board whether that was the nurse or if that was something else or her her psyche 
something, saying baby on board and then the nurse saying, breathe, you must breathe. But she kind of stops and she goes, wait, who, who has a baby? Who's, who's got to breathe? And then she realizes that it's her. And she's like, oh, I'm pregnant. I, I have to go back. And so she turns around. And she mentions how hard it was, as we often see in many near-death experiences, the, how, how the reluctance of just being at the cusp of this all-encompassing feeling of love and warmth and, and joy, just to have to turn away from that and go back into essentially pain um, seems to be what most people return to, which is, it's, I mean... It, it sounds incredibly hard. Uh, she says that the return back down the tunnel was brutally sudden. And she, like I said, comes back to consciousness and, and chaos. Everybody's running around, people shouting, her body's in pain. Um, and then she's going back to what I mentioned before. She says, my memories flooded back. And I knew I had many children and others who needed me to hold on. So again, that just emphasizes that point of, of while this experience is happening, memory and clarity of self or, or your perhaps your life or your personhood is, it doesn't seem to be as sharp during a near-death experience. But we'll keep an eye out for that in, in future episodes. And then she has to give give birth to her child. This poor woman. It, it's just one thing after another. It, it definitely is. is um, seems like she went through through a lot. Um, and thank God that she was okay, and and that um, her son was as well. And uh, interesting how she. She has has a certain uh, faith and confidence and in, in, in knowing that her son, at least, is going to be okay because of her dream. And this expresses a similar idea that many people um, tend to say once they've had a near-death experience is, is that they don't, they don't fear death because... They've had that experience and know that, that it will be okay. And um, that can be, you know, to have to have an experience to to be able to base one's faith upon is powerful. And that's why I. I tend to talk around these ideas of, of synchronicities and dreams because, because I don't think anyone else ever having, having one in their life could prove it to you. And I, I suppose that extends to near-death experiences, but but the idea being that we should all be on the lookout for these moments in our lives where something eternal enters into time and space. 
in the form of a synchronicity or or a powerful dream or something that is expressed to you that is then physicalized or materialized out um, in the world. Because that can be very powerful. And sometimes if... And again, it's it's a very tricky thing because you don't want to turn every little thing that you see into <laughs> trying to make it into something meaningful. Then like if, you know, I dial the number six on my phone and then I see a license plate that has a six in it. Like you don't have to twist them to make them meaningful. When these things happen, they they tend to announce themselves if you're paying attention. There have been, uh, for instance, uh, one that I had, if I hadn't been paying attention to my dreams, then I would not have have um, noticed um, something weird that happened afterwards. And sometimes they can be very emotional and they'll grip you and, and you can't miss them. Um. But, you know, sometimes it can be very hard to remember one's dreams or, or to, to notice if there's a particular image or something coming to you um, from within um, and, then, and then to notice it if, if it comes to you out in the world. And it's not, <laughs> there's not a regularity to it. There's, it's, not a, it's not like if I dream of a dream of an eagle that I will necessarily see an eagle the next day but that sort of thing can happen and and it can be very weird and it can be very um, send chills down down the back of your neck Um, and so I think what we can take away from from stories like this is is just how how meaningful our inner experiences can be and how they can actually culminate in something that that gives one a, a gift that that people search their whole lives for to be to not have fear of death to to have a a comfort throughout life to know to know uh, in one's own experience. That's the idea of, of uh, gnosis, to have firsthand knowledge of, of the, <laughs> the sacred, the divine, um, of God, perhaps. And, and so I, I think these stories, while we we can't <laughs> we we can't prove them or, or or that sort of thing in any sort of scientific sense. Of course, um, they can get us to start paying attention to the voice within each one of us, which I think is important, and to to be humble about it and not. Um, try to make it something that it's not, but just to have that attention. And then perhaps a, a miracle can happen. Um, and, and not necessarily a miracle like we all might 
imagine. But to have that experience of, of having a something precognitive or, or, or a, a very strong synchronicity of knowing that knowing that you're going to have two kids before you actually do, or knowing that your life and the life of your son was essentially saved because of a voice you heard when you woke up in the morning that told you to get to the hospital, and then events happening in a certain way to where you had the exact doctor that you needed who normally wouldn't have been there um, based on, on the right timing of, of events occurring. To have that, I mean, that's, that's a miracle, right? It's not changing water into wine or something, but it's, it is a, a pairing of, of the inside and outside in a way that is, is, there aren't words for it. And so uh, I think that's very, a very powerful thing to, to think about and to be aware of. And, and people, people find these kinds of stories when they happen absolutely, you know, enthralling. Like news stories of, of someone who was in the right place at the right time and they say, well, I just had a sense that I, I should be there. And, and people kind of nod their heads and, and and at the same time shrug their shoulders. <laughs> it's, we find it very, very interesting when these sorts of things happen and, and for good reason. So, so I think I'll end it there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you to Selena for sharing this incredible story. Uh, if you want to Send me an email. You can reach out to me at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. If any of you have had a near-death experience and, and want to send it to me, um, please uh, please send me an email. I uh, don't know if I'll be able to read it on the podcast, but I'd still like to read it regardless um, of length or, or brevity. Um because it's just very fascinating, and especially to get in touch with, with uh, you all out there who, um, who listen. I, I think that's really cool. So uh, shoot me an email or check out the Facebook page. Um, and if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you use, because that really helps us out. And now we will end, as ever, with a quote on death. Okay, so today's quote is coming from Emanuel Swedenborg, who is a figure who I need to discuss more of. He was uh, an amazing inventor, and um, he, he had incredible near-death experience-like journeys into... Um, heaven and hell and uh he wrote a lot of it down and there's a lot of fascinating stuff which which i need to uh perhaps devote an entire episode to but uh i thought i'd at least start uh that discussion with a quote from him and this is coming from his work called uh heaven and hell 
All in heaven take joy in sharing their delights and blessings with others.